Welcome back to Stream Again, the podcast where we try to stream every single TV show in the universe, only to realize that the universe is vast and time is finite, and that's a really big ask. So instead, we pick a show or two to review every week, and then we talk about what's going on in the world of streaming and TV, because we just love the world of streaming and TV so much. But who are we? My name is Chris, Chris Barlow. I'm your host, and I am joined by the She-Hulk of my universe, my cinematic universe, <laughs> if you will, Diane Nora. Hey, Diane. Hi, Chris. I feel like I should have smashed something for the occasion. You have control over your powers, right? Grow big right now. Smash not the computer or the microphone. In fact, if you could smash very quietly, because we are recording. You can't tell, but I'm now enormous and green. Go. Oh. Oh, we're on Zoom, and my eyes, I'm blinded. I will try to adjust in time for us to discuss She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, the new Disney Plus series, part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is uh, aired as of now, two episodes, three by the time you listen to this, dear listener. Uh, and we're going to review the first two episodes, give uh, a little hot take on Marvel's first comedy. Oh, and then we're going to talk about another comedy. Uh, specifically, we're going to do what we call a rewind review of Only Murders in the Building. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know we already talked about the beginning of season two of Only Murders in the Building on Hulu. And now it's finished. So we get to go spoiler crazy, spoilerific, spoilertastic as we discuss the uh, outcome of that hilarious mystery. I think it's fair to call it that. Agreed. We will give you plenty of alerts before we d dive into that conversation. So if you haven't finished that, don't worry. We've got plenty of stuff to get to before that. So far in the future. And if you just want to skip to that, your little podcast app has a little feature where you can choose a chapter and we like to mark the chapters so you can easily navigate the spoilers because we know spoilers, they're so important. They're so scary. Mm. And we are about to lightly touch on some spoilers as we transition into some follow-up. So, um, you know, a little light spoiler warning here for uh, episodes one and two of a little show that you might know of as House of the Dragon. You might know that we reviewed the premiere of House of the Dragon last week, and I had lots of feelings that I worked through. Uh, Diane, how are you feeling now that we're two weeks into House of the Dragon? Oh, about the same. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still watching it, so... Uh, same here. Something's working. And you know what? So is everyone else who watched week one of House of the Dragon, because the follow-up we have, and this is super spoiler light, so if you're somehow trying to preserve the mystery around House of the Dragon, don't worry. And honestly, if you haven't seen it, you're probably fine. But... You should know that you are apparently alone if you haven't seen it, because House of the Dragon is officially HBO's biggest premiere ever. 10.2 million people watched the second episode, which is a very small increase of 2%, though I think the, the folks at HBO are happy about that, I'm sure. They are definitely happy about that, because these numbers come from the folks at HBO themselves, because like everything in the streaming universe, it's a black box, and they only tell us when it's good news. So guess what? Mm. Good news at HBO. That's a rare phrase these days, so let's savor it. Uh, by the end of that first week, or at least since the premiere of the first episode, twenty, nearly 25 million people have watched House of the Dragon. I, I saw that. That number I thought was significant. 
Yeah, me too. And I would guess by the time our lovely listeners are hearing this, over 25 million people have probably watched the House of the Dragon premiere, which is definitely an impressive number in the streaming era. And uh, what we said last week still holds true. The big question here is, will these viewers continue watching through the rest of the season? And obviously, the indication is good news for HBO. Everybody tuned into week two so far. Let's see if they stick around. So far, the, I would say the quality of episode two is about the quality of episode one. I, I would actually say I enjoyed episode two a bit more. It had less setup to do, so we got to spend more time with the characters. And I really mm. do love the actress playing Rhaenyra, the main, the main not Daenerys, the one who will always make you think of Daenerys. But don't worry, guys, it's not a Daenerys situation. She's phenomenal. She is. Overall, I'd say the acting across the board is quite good. I ooh, I don't know. I I can't <laughs> tell. Is it is it that I hate Matt Smith's wig, or do I hate Matt Smith's casting? I said it. I said it. I was afraid. I'm not sure if it's that I hate Matt Smith's casting or I hate the writing they gave him, but uh, so many that... things that we could maybe hate. But you know what? If you want to feel those feelings again, you can go back to the last episode of the podcast because boy, did we feel them. Before we move on from House of the Dragon, which, yes, was officially renewed for a uh, second season, not surprising whatsoever. I think every viewer could have dropped it and they still would have renewed it just out of sheer hope, determination. Uh, But something that didn't strike me as a great choice, perhaps, the theme song for House of the Dragon is a little familiar. In fact, it's exactly the same as the theme song to Game of Thrones. Yes. Did they even switch the key? I know. I think they changed nothing. And then the opening sequence does that same little, like, toy box and things are moving. Mm -hmm. We're zoomed in really close. Except instead of showing me where we're going in this episode, it's just like, here's some blood that kind of looks like jam. And here's some other blood that kind of looks like jam. And this blood, it looks like jam. None of it looked right. The whole opening sequence, I was like, I get it, it's blood, but it doesn't look like blood. And what is the blood for, and what am I looking at? I think that this is just HBO saying, don't worry, we're not changing anything. It's just Game of Thrones again. What I want to know, though, this is all supposed to be a big franchise move. They have many other projects that they're considering greenlighting with the Game of Thrones, you know, imprint. Are they going to use the same theme song for every single one? That's madness. It is a really good theme song. Sure, but that's why you take a you take a segment of it. You take a little mm-hmm. refrain, a little, you know, echo of the theme song, and then I get really excited when I hear that. Oh, sure, yeah. Put it in a like minor key or something oh, too, you know, yes, just like spookify yes. it. But no, apparently they just went, you know what, it's already recorded. Let's just hit play. <laughs> or as I, I did wanna uh point out this tweet from uh, TV critic David Itzkoff. Uh, he pointed out a spinoff show is not allowed to use the theme from the original show because what if Frasier had just used the Cheers theme? Those are two such incredibly iconic theme songs that this just made me remember that uh, every time I hear the Game of Thrones song, I um, so one of my friends used to sing it with just saying the name Dinklage over and over again. So that's all I hear when I hear it. <laughs> that's good. That's good. And honestly, if they announced Peter Dinklage was coming back by oh using the theme song to sing his name, I would approve of that use of the theme song. It's true. Another Peter Dinklage vehicle, please. 
always, I will take them all. A whole Peter Dinklage spinoff. In fact, I don't know why that's not greenlit already, but let's move on to more follow-up from our friends at HBO and HBO Max. This is a quick one. We've already talked so much about Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal. We did a rewind review of the entire season last week, and that uh, was mind-bending to talk about, and then mind-bending again to listen to. Uh, But that's not why we're here. I'm going to keep this short because I know what will happen if we start talking about the rehearsal. There is some interesting news if you are as down that rabbit hole as we are. Many of the people from the rehearsal, many of the participants, are now available to participate with you on Cameo. Cameo being the app where D and C list celebrities can send you little video messages for a cute little fee. And now you can get video messages from Angela from the rehearsal, from uh, Core, our trivia star from the Alligator Lounge. Diane, who do you want a cameo from? So I had a good think about this because so many people I know love this show. And then I was like, oh, no, these are not good people. I don't want to give them my money. And so I think Core is really the best option here. Core is a good choice. Uh, his uh, participant at Trivia, his friend who he had to confess mm-hmm. his, his uh, lies to, she's on there. Those are some really solid choices, I think. Yes, neither of those people showed any inklings of anti-Semitism, <laughs> so they seem to be the safest bets. So true. And if you have not listened to any of our coverage of the rehearsal yet, that made as much sense as any of it ever will. And we can't wait for season two. But that's enough about the drama at HBO and HBO Max. We have some quick follow-up on another show we've talked about and we'll be talking about again very soon, Peacock's The Resort. We did a review of the first few episodes of The Resort. It is a really intriguing and genre-bendy show. I am looking forward to uh, looking back on the whole season. Uh, The finale is airing this week, so by the time you listen to this episode, you, dear listener, may know the, the great... I hope, reveal at the end of the resort, because if it is a letdown, that will hurt. Uh, We will Mm -hmm. watch that finale, and we'll give you our our take next week. Uh, What we talked about last week is that NBC decided to make a little play for Peacock by airing the pilot of the resort uh, on NBC, on the television, uh, after an America's Got Talent results show, which is, again, as big as summer TV gets on the networks. Uh, we did follow up on that. We wanted to see how did it perform. And we have some numbers from TV line that I would say are not super encouraging. No, unfortunately. So they drew 2.3 million total viewers, which gives it a 0.3 Nielsen rating. I think it's a lot less than they'd hoped. Yeah, and what struck me is it it performed worse, significantly worse, than what it replaced in that time slot. The week before, NBC was still airing Password, the game show your grandparents remember, now rebooted with Jimmy Fallon. So that's how little I care to watch Password. But Password did outperform the resort. So not the best showing. I got to be honest, that is a tough sell, though. That pilot is a complicated and not super funny pilot. It's a beautiful pilot. It's kind of gorgeous to watch. But I, I really... I didn't want to say this last week because I wanted to think positive thoughts, but when I heard that NBC was pitching the resort at the America's Got Talent viewership, I thought, no, honey, that's not going to work out for you. It does seem like a bit of a 
missed opportunity though i get why they tried it because the show is great but also i don't understand why someone who doesn't have peacock would want to watch one episode of a mystery to me that would be like torture it'd be like no i must know more now i need more now so i think and if you wanted to know the mystery you would just pay for peacock already I I don't know. I I suspect they have some numbers that tell them there are a lot of people who get Peacock as part of their Comcast or Xfinity cable package who are never, ever opening the app. And that they're just hoping... It it was a problem that HBO Max faced when they transitioned from HBO Go and HBO Now to an actual streaming service, HBO Max. It was included with everyone's HBO package. And it took a year for me to convince my parents that this was true. That they could watch HBO Max without paying separately. They, they've been paying mm-hmm. for HBO through their cable for decades at this point. And yet, you know, it was really hard for them to wrap their mind around that same channel now came with an app that they could watch things on demand on. Uh, and I wonder if Comcast is seeing the same issues with Peacock Pickup. That would make a lot of sense. I also think, you know, it's hard to change viewers' habits. So if people have some sort of cable package, they might, that cable package might include DVR or something too. So if they aren't watching live TV, they might already, you know, be recording the shows they want to watch. There's so much content right now that even if you just have cable and not these streaming services, you've already got enough on your plate. It's true. Unless you're me and you have to see everything. Well, that's why we're here, Diane. So we can do that for everyone else. Their time is precious. Ours, eh, who cares? Uh, And speaking of precious content that we, Diane and I, have willed into existence, our final piece of follow-up this week is about, we're going to come to this a sideways way, it's about a little streamer you might remember us mentioning last week called Yahoo Screen, because we all scream for Yahoo Screen, where you can stream... Community, specifically. Uh, Season 6 of Community, the NBC mm, just piece de resistance of network sitcoms, uh, that aired on Yahoo Screen. You probably have forgotten this, unless you really listened closely last week. Uh, Why are we bringing this up? Well, within seemingly minutes of us mentioning Yahoo Screen, news broke that Dan Harmon is sending, let's say, good vibes in the direction of a community movie. And if you're not really familiar with community, I got to pause for a second and say, one, stop, just go watch now. Uh, Two, the running joke through community for a long time has been six seasons and a movie. And they got canceled after five. Then Yahoo Screen gave them the sixth at a massive financial loss. I just want to point out, this comes from uh, the AV Club. Yahoo Screen lost $42 million on Community and two other originals. And that was the entire Yahoo Screen oeuvre. Uh, So naturally, that sixth season was the last season of Community. But now, like a decade later... Rumors of the movie seem to be coming true. Uh, The Wrap reported this with a super enthusiastic headline that says, uh, Dan Harmon, the creator of Community, says uh, a community movie is a matter of when and not if. That sounds really encouraging, right, Diane? Oh my gosh, yes. The reality of Dan Harmon's quote is not nearly as encouraging as that clickbait headline. What he did say, I'm going to just read this quote direct from Dan Harmon. There's a story. 
I'll just stop there. That's pretty much all we need to know. He wrote a story. That's the news. <laughs> he goes on to say that the story has been written so that they can shop it around, start talking to who will pick this up, because there is absolutely no idea in my mind, is NBC even remotely interested in working with him again? And do they even have the budget or the venue for this? Where would it go? Peacock? We'll talk more about Peacock later, but that's, mm-hmm. that's a question. But number two, he points out, like, just to get the talent involved, you need a script. You need to start putting some logistics in place to say, well, who would be free when? Where would we shoot? Who's going to pay for it? So they're at that stage, which is not nearly as encouraging as the headline suggested, but is still good news. It is good news. This was such a great ensemble that, for me, I would want everyone back, uh, at least really the core crew. The core. And honestly, having rewatched some of Community Season 6 since we mentioned it last week, one of the real successes of that season is they introduced two new kind of core cast members, and they fit like, you know, we're not going to go on a whole community uh, diatribe here because we could. Uh, but but it was it's something I had forgotten as a big community fan was how well season six integrated the new cast members with a cast that was missing multiple original cast members by this point. And it right. didn't feel like it was a lesser than version of community. It felt like one of the best versions of community, especially because there was a season on NBC that is the lesser than version of community. But that again, that's a separate diatribe for another episode. Yeah, some of these actors have gone on to huge things, which is outstanding. Um, I think the big question will be, can they get Donald, Donald Glover, Glover back? I yeah. know, that is. He's... he's making incredible television uh he's making films he's rapping he's very busy though he did say he's gonna stop doing childish gambino too so you know maybe see. and maybe. i wonder if a movie is an easier ask for him you know i can yeah, see why he right, wanted to... a series yeah exactly god I, i'm so excited at this tantalizing mirage of a community movie but i'm gonna control myself we are gonna move on and we are gonna talk about some new news And our new news, we've got a few streamers to touch on this week, but we're going to spend a lot of time talking about our friends at Peacock and NBC and kind of by relation, Hulu. So how does this all tie together? Well, uh, longtime listeners may know I have coined a phrase I love called the Peacockalypse. And the Peacockalypse is not actually bad news for Peacock, because Peacock is just a walking embodiment of bad news. Uh, the Peacockalypse mm. is bad news for Hulu. Let me explain. Those of us who are a thousand years old might remember that Hulu was originally created by NBC, ABC, and Fox as a counterweight to Netflix, which at the time was the only thing with streaming. So... Hulu was supposed to be the network response to streaming. Well, time passed, and all of the networks went crazy and bought each other, or got bought. And we now are at a point where Hulu is owned primarily by Disney, because Disney owns ABC and bought Fox. But NBC, now owned by Comcast, is still one-third owner of Hulu confusing, especially because NBC has their own streaming service called Peacock, and they would much prefer you watch things on Peacock than Hulu. But they also own a third of Hulu, which is money. Cash Mm -hmm. money that they do not want to lose value on. 
So, how do you thread that needle? How do you do that? That's an interesting business school question, isn't it? Which is why you're here listening to me, Scott Galloway, on our business podcast. Uh, but in all seriousness, what is the Peacocalypse? What does it mean for NBC? What does it mean for Hulu? And most importantly, what does it mean for my choice of sound effects? I went with, like, the full orchestral NBC, uh, you know, chime. I didn't go for the little ding, ding, ding. I went for, like, the boom, 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 boom. Because it's a big deal. Uh, What's going to happen, what what is happening right now, is that NBC is going to stop airing NBC shows next day on Hulu. That's the simple message. If you just want to stop the peacocalypse right here and get off, you've got what you need to know. Starting with the new fall season, which has just kicked off, NBC is not going to be airing next day on Hulu. They will be airing next day on Peacock. So if you're one of those viewers who likes to watch, say, Saturday Night Live, Sunday morning on your streaming service, that will no longer be available on Hulu. You'll now have to see new episodes on Peacock. Yes, or watch old episodes of things because... Again, NBC, mm-hmm. still part owner of Hulu, is not pulling up their back catalog fully off Hulu. They're just pulling yet. the new episodes off. I know yet is the key word there. There are so many moving pieces here and so many weird contractual arrangements that feel kind of quaint in, in 2022. But the one that really struck me is that when uh, Disney bought out Fox... Somebody at NBC went, excuse me, that's not great for us uh, being a part owner of Hulu. And so Disney, I can imagine Disney's thought here is, fine, get out of Hulu. We will give you this little, like, change we found in between the couch cushions and buy you out, and Hulu will be ours. But of course, NBC, they would like to be bought out for a lot of money and not just Disney's couch cushion change. So they negotiated an arrangement that I I really needed to like read this a few times to wrap my head around it. So I Mm -hmm. hope this makes some sense. When Disney took ownership of Fox and therefore became the majority owner of Hulu, they agreed to let Comcast, which is NBC, they agreed to let Comcast leave Hulu for a $27.5 billion buyout in January of 2024. So that is still almost a year and a half away. That's Disney saying, we're not going to give you that much money today. We're not going to give you that much money tomorrow. If you keep pushing content into this service, if you don't abandon ship, we will pay you your big payday in January of 2024 when we can presume Disney will be feeling really good about their own streaming strategy. So this I read as Disney saying, sure, we'll buy you out, but you need to wait until we get our ducks in a row so that we feel like we're competitively ahead of you. Mm. And then at that point, what we'll see is either Hulu continue as just a Disney-owned property, or I think what we expect to happen is that Hulu might be folded into some larger Disney streaming service, perhaps just as part of Disney Plus. Right. And and there is the other possibility, which is in January 2024, Comcast could say, no, we like it here. Mm-hmm. And they could not leave. That is an option. That is probably the least likely option. But but listen, what 
kind of shape will Peacock be in a year from now? That, I think, is the main question here. Because if Peacock is not gaining any momentum, if Peacock a year from now is still Peacock from right now, that's not going to be a good situation for NBC. Right. And as a reminder to our listeners, Peacock didn't really gain any new subscribers last quarter. So... uh, the, no. its fate really is in question. And it might sound like, well, I, I thought Netflix is losing subscribers. Isn't this the time everyone's losing subscribers? That's not true for a new service like Peacock. A new service like Peacock that is still in that phase of its streaming life, where its goal is to just light a lot of money on fire in the hopes that people are attracted to the flame, uh, they're supposed to be losing a ton of money but gaining a ton of subscribers. And they're losing a ton of money. They are doing one half of that very, very, very well. They are just stalled on the subscriber growth, though. Which brings us back to why they put the resort on NBC. I bet there are some very smart people at NBC who went, this isn't a great fit. But there are also some really smart people at NBC who said, we don't have any new content for that hour of network television this week. Why don't we do anything to drive interest to Peacock. Who cares if it's a bad fit? If 12 people of that 0.3 Nielsen rating, if 12 of those people signed up for Peacock or opened their Peacock app for the first time ever, suddenly realizing they had access to Peacock, that is sort of a win. Yeah. Uh, They're also pushing Love Island. (laughs) Sure. Just, oh, I, yeah. I'm surprised that didn't end up. Maybe they didn't have the the rights for that to put that on on network. NBC. Yeah, Oof. I know it's tough. Maybe this will work. Maybe the Peacockalypse will be a success, and they'll find that people want those next day viewings. I think that will is really going to be the big question if that works or not. Yeah, how important is next day to you know these viewers and. I, you know, anecdotally, I would say somewhat important. Right now, I have access to both Hulu and Peacock, and uh, m- uh, until recently, ad-free Hulu. Sad story. But when I had ad-free Hulu, I would choose to do my next day NBC watching on Hulu because I had the ad-free Hulu, whereas I only have Peacock Premium, which gives you premium ads. And if you want no ads, that's Peacock Premium Plus. The names. I do think that... Uh... It's just going to be training their subscribers to form a new habit. So, a new habit that requires them opening not a great app. We we don't always get into the discussion of the apps themselves, but I would point out Peacock is probably one of my least enjoyed streaming apps as a as a user. Uh, for a while, uh, HBO Max got to wear that crown. Everyone hated on the HBO Max app. The HBO Max app has actually improved quite a lot this year. The Peacock app is one of those apps where when I open it, it's like it's taken over my TV and turned it into some infected zombie, and I just have to go along for the ride. Uh, agree. The user experience isn't great. And because Hulu's been around a lot longer, they've worked out a lot it. of those kinks. Yeah. But, you know, people love their Saturday Night Live. That's right. And people love their Chicago Fire, their Mm -hmm. various law and orders. So there's really a possibility there that this could work. But boy, that is a big could and a a real, like, possibility, not a guarantee. We'll have to see how that works out for our friends at Cable Town. 
I do think you make a really good point that this could be the beginning of the end of Hulu. Mm. In that, even if Hulu's very successful, at a certain point, if it's only Disney that owns it, why is it not part of Disney Plus? You, Diane, you were just overseas where there is no Hulu. Where do you watch Only Murders in the Building if you're overseas? So it was through the Disney Plus app, and there was a tile that was uh, star streaming. Star. um, Yeah. So there you can watch, you know, uh, Only Murders in the Building and your other favorite uh, Hulu originals, um, which was my big concern when I thought of the idea of, like, what happens to Peacock. I love a lot of these Hulu original content shows, and I'd be very sad to see them go or just to see fewer new shows like them get greenlit um so i'm going to be following that super closely but we also have noted on the show previously that hulu seems like part of the reason it existed may have been to house some of disney's more adult content and when they moved the mcu shows that have a little bit more of that adult content from netflix uh that were originally on netflix um those are now on disney plus so if disney plus can air that content why shouldn't they also air the bear right the bear is a really good example there because on the one hand brand wise it feels very un-disney to me whether you care about the adult language or adult situations or not there are plenty of ways for the disney plus app to handle different you know uh, age ranges of content that is not Mm -hmm. a new concept at all so what's more interesting to me is just brand wise Hulu has done a really interesting job of both branding their own originals, like Only Murders, The Handmaid's Tale. They have some real clear Hulu originals you think of. And then they've become the the streaming home for FX, which has its Mm. own really strong brand recognition. And and I wonder what their long-term strategy with that is. Because FX, even though the, the network FX is kind of a dumping ground for old Marvel movies that you can watch before what we do in the shadows. That is basically all FX is now, and Archer, and Archer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but John Landgraf, who runs FX, he is a creative powerhouse. I mean, he it, just because FX the channel has uh, diminished in importance, FX the brand is actually still huge, I think. And if you sunset Hulu, what do you do with that? The other question yeah. there is, Hulu actually is profitable. Hulu is one of the only streamers that actually makes money and makes a financial bottom line that makes sense. I think it is crazy that the streamer that is most objectively successful is the one that we all just assume is doomed for corporate reasons. It is. I think that part of the thing, too, is that there are different metrics of success here, too, where, like, if subscriber growth is your biggest metric of success, which used to be what streamers were looking at, uh, then, you know, Hulu isn't the biggest success story. But if it is in terms of just, like, breaking even on a financial scale, Hulu is dominating. Uh, and is really the only one dominating right now. So that is funny. But of course, we don't know what will happen. And Hulu could find a way to either survive um, or, you know, maintain a strong Hulu brand still within this larger Disney umbrella. Yeah, I think the real question that I don't see enough people asking, if they get rid of Hulu, 
how much do they have to raise the price of Disney Plus? One of the advantages to that strategy in the US right now is you can sell Hulu and Disney Plus for less separately, but make more when people pay for both Mm -hmm. than if you literally combine them into a single service. And similar uh, strategy, Disney will sell you a bundle, which is a good deal for Hulu, Disney Plus, and ESPN Plus, which is a great way of taking people who only want two of the three and just convincing them the upsell is worth it to get all three. Uh, And certainly they could continue to do that with an ESPN Disney Plus bundle and move all the Hulu stuff into Disney Plus, sure. But, you know, Disney Plus is not profitable. Hulu is. I got to come back to that. So if you close up shop on the one that is profitable, what is the message you tell investors, literally, about how this makes financial sense? And how expensive do you have to make Disney Plus to compensate for that? Right. It's already gotten more expensive in the past year. How much more will consumers put up with? That is a very interesting question to me, and I I suspect it's going to be a while before we know the answer. Because, like we Mm -hmm. said at the beginning of this peacockalypse conversation, uh, the writing is on the wall, sort of, but that that wall is in January of 2024. The wall is so far away, I'm squinting across the horizon to see it, and nobody really needs to make a decision right now. In fact, I would be surprised if they have made up their mind yet. I'm sure they are leaning in one direction or another. I'm sure they have many plans for what they could do with Hulu, depending on how things shake out. But I would be shocked if they'd already made a real decision. No, and whatever they do decide, I think they'll probably be very strategic in how it's uh, released to the public. But we will keep you informed. Speaking of uh, perhaps ill-conceived strategies, uh, let's <laughs> move on from the peacockalypse to, I guess, the NBCocalypse. Same sound effect, different vibes. Uh, this is an, a really interesting rumor that came out this week uh, from The Hollywood Reporter. We'll have a link in the show notes. NBC, the network, just the television network, NBC, is thinking about doing the unthinkable. And and by the unthinkable, I mean something they already tried and it didn't work. That That's the unthinkable for you. And that's NBC. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. Well, well, well what if you fooled me a third time? How many times could you fool me? NBC. I'm talking, of course, about getting rid of of the 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time hour of primetime television. And if you are a youth, you may not remember what me and Diane lived through. Uh, Me and Diane were, of course, members of the greatest generation. That's the generation of people who fought through the trenches of dial-up internet and VCRs as a way to record television. Do you remember programming a VCR with, like, a tape in it? I do. I have flashbacks time and again. Uh It hurts. Yeah. But that is an idea NBC tried when they got rid of the 10 p.m. hour of primetime to give Jay Leno another show. This, if you really can't recall, uh, when Jay Leno stepped down, he says in air quotes, from The Tonight Show, NBC gave The Tonight Show to Conan O'Brien, who you might now recall did not host The Tonight Show for very long, because Jay Leno, I guess, didn't want to quit doing The Tonight Show after all, and so NBC, in hopes of appeasing Jay Leno, who I imagine just throws staplers at everyone, like, the need to appease Jay Leno is so high, what does he do to his assistants that everyone's so afraid of him? 
Anyway, they gave him a show at 10 p.m. five nights a week. Nobody liked that. It went so badly, just so incredibly badly. Do you remember how badly this went for NBC? I do. It just, no one was on their side. The Leno fans were mad. The Conan fans were mad. The local affiliates were mad. Right. And and that may be happening all again in terms of the local affiliate anger because their plan this time is not to give this seven hours of primetime television to Jay Leno. Thank God. Thank (laughs) Just pause there. At least somebody at NBC has like their head screwed on correctly. Continue. But to pass it back to the local affiliates to cover seven hours of streaming. But interestingly enough, these affiliates don't want that time. They don't they don't want to fill it. You know, if you're not somebody who really pays attention to your local NBC, ABC, and CBS affiliates, you might not know the the implication here. But the idea is that in general, primetime TV leads in to the nightly news, not not the 6 p.m. NBC nightly news. No, your local 10 p.m. Central, 11 p.m. Eastern. Who knows when anything airs in Pacific? But that newscast, that newscast that airs at the end of the night before The Tonight Show, before Colbert, that is the big slot for your local affiliate. They really care about that slot of 35 minutes of shootings, weather, and sports scores. That's when they get to tell you everybody who died. It's so true. And when the pumpkin spice lattes will be back. That's what that half hour is for. Uh, And, you know, truly, the affiliates hate the idea of having to come up with their own lead-in to their most important half hour of the night. Because that's what NBC is doing. NBC is punting. They're saying, yeah, what if you guys had to figure out how to schedule the, like, most important hour of prime time? The hour of prime time where we put the show that is the most important show in the evening lineup, typically. I think that on the one hand, this seems to show that they think broadcast news is no longer, you know, the prime jewel of their entertainment offerings and everyone's going over to streaming. However, that's an odd assertion for a company whose streaming service did not grow in subscribers last quarter. Well, it's funny you bring that up, Diane, because I think that's a big part of this idea. Because they, to be clear, they have not committed to this. And if they are no. going to do this, the earliest is a year from now, fall 2023, absolute earliest they would consider a move like this. Right. They've already got the next year programmed. Yeah. Uh, Why do I think that timing is interesting? Well, you know, we just finished talking about how Comcast, which owns NBC and Peacock, has the option to get bought out of Hulu in January of 2024, which, boy, would be halfway in to the 2023-2024 television season. And... If these rumors in The Hollywood Reporter are to be believed, NBC is telling its creators and its affiliates that this is not about reducing the amount of scripted programming. They're not saying, we don't want to make that many shows. They're saying, we don't want to air that many shows on primetime. We would like some of them to be on Peacock. Exclusively. As someone who's paying for Peacock right now, I don't hate that part of this plan. You know, it jives with what uh, CBS is doing with Paramount Plus right now in some ways. Mm-hmm. They're they're realizing that the biggest hits on CBS are things like NCIS, 
and over on the Paramount network, Yellowstone. And through some hilarious hijinks, uh, Paramount cannot stream Yellowstone because <laughs> they stupidly sold it to Comcast for Peacock. But they can air a bunch of Paramount Plus exclusive Yellowstone spinoffs, and they can do an NCIS reboot direct to Paramount Plus. And so they're beginning to play on this playbook that's take our biggest hits from linear television and make new versions of them that are exclusive to streaming. And NBC is a network very well versed in franchise television and making spin-offs. I could think of a few. But maybe that's a strategy. I don't know. Everything about Peacock feels doomed when I talk about it, but I thought it was really interesting to read the Hulu news and the NBC primetime news back to back. It's also interesting with like Netflix and Disney Plus clearly being in big competition with each other, that maybe having a streaming service that's slightly smaller could be an advantage going forward. We'll see. You're describing Hulu. You're just describing Hulu. <laughs> we have a good thing with Hulu, and every other I network is Hulu. out there to ruin it. They all want to ruin what we've got. I hate it. I hate it. I love Hulu. And we're Take gonna... down the only one that's making us money. You know, you, you talk about the other streamers, though, and we should wrap up our news segment. And what better way to wrap up our news segment with a quick check-in on the Netflocalypse. And there's so much happening in Netflix this week, I'm gonna go fast. First of all, we all are waiting to hear about the Netflix ad-supported tier. Everyone wants to know, how much money will I save if I'm willing to watch Geico ads in the middle of the Queen's Gambit? And the answer is not a lot of money, maybe. Uh, Rumors are out that the Netflix ad-supported tier will cost somewhere in the range of $7 a month to $9 a month US versus the $15 a month for a kind of standard ad-free Netflix package, if I've got my my math right. Mm -hmm. That's not a great deal. It's not a terrible deal. I think that's one that hinges on what's the ratio of ads to content. How insufferable are the ads? Is it really worth saving $5 to $7? Right. And I think that also might be, you know, even if it's a small number of users who switch over to that, but it means that that prevents some of the churn that they're hoping to avoid. For Netflix, it could still be a win. Uh, It was interesting to me to read that some of the titles might stay ad-free even on the ad tier because of these old licensing deals. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me because uh, HBO has to deal with the same thing on HBO Max. Most of the HBO originals have licensing deals that prevent them from running ads during them. And so as a nice bonus, if you pay for the cheaper HBO Max, you still get ad-free HBO. Ooh, insider tip. Mm. And I wonder how they'll unravel those licensing agreements, because at a certain point, I'm sure somebody there is saying, we will not renew any agreement that does not allow us to run ads. Right. Uh, That might just be the future of all these agreements going forward. It's true. With the exception of HBO, I do think David Zaslav, as we've talked about at length, loves HBO for HBO's sake. And I do think there's probably somebody trying to protect the ad-free experience there. But I, I agree with you in general. I think everyone wants the flexibility now to launch an ad tier. They're looking at how successful Hulu is and... And it's a great deal. Hulu has, <laughs> Hulu has many times said they actually make more money on uh, each ad-supported user than they do on the people who pay the premium for no ads. They, they, they make good money on ads. 
uh, and Hulu's the best at it, which is interesting. We're not talking about Disney Plus's ad-supported tier this week. There's some more rumblings it's coming at the end of the year. We already kind of knew that. But I do think the big story there, or what could be the big story, depending on how the Disney Plus ad tier launches, is that Disney has the advantage of owning the ad juggernaut of the streaming universe. Everyone else Mm -hmm. in the streaming universe is just figuring out advertising. Uh, Hulu has been doing it for years and does it successfully. Yeah, they've already figured out that technology so that they don't have to spend a ton of money like Netflix just did in, you know, bringing on someone like Microsoft to handle these ads. Everyone's looking to beef up their um, truly their their like knowledge base around advertising. And it'll be interesting to see how well Netflix does it versus how well Disney Plus does it because they will likely launch their ad-supported services right around the same time. And so the comparisons will be just on display. Yeah, and since both have had to do it in somewhat of a rush, the success of those launches could mean losing a bunch or the failure of those launches could mean losing subscribers to the competitor there. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if there are technical issues, there are a lot of possibilities. Uh, One other detail that came out on the Netflix ad-supported plan, rumor is it will not allow for offline viewing for downloading shows to watch on your uh, tablet or phone. That does not surprise me at all, both because that feels like a premium feature, you want an upsell, and Mm -hmm. because the, the ad insertion technology I'm sure is complicated enough as is, let alone if you add an element where people can download episodes and then you have to register whether they saw the ad or not, and how long has the episode been sitting there, and does the ad need to switch out? There's just so many moving parts there. I'm So I'm not surprised to hear that. No, that makes a lot of sense and could simplify some of their tech issues. Yeah. And uh, finally on the Netflix beat, because we do have to move on to some very juicy TV that we watched this week. Uh, Here are some things I will probably not be watching on Netflix. They just announced their holiday movie slate. Are you excited for that? Wait, I am. I really Really? am. Really? What are you excited for? Are you excited? Let me guess. Are you excited for Christmas with You, Falling for Christmas, or The Noel Diary? I mean, all all of these rom-coms. Yes, I want them all. And I'm probably going to watch at least four or five of them on Thanksgiving. Uh, I, I... I won't be able to control myself. I am very excited to see, too, that uh, Glass Onion, the new Knives Out movie, is coming out on December 23rd. That's a big slot. Uh, I am excited for that, too. That is true. That cast is stacked. And that that one might actually be good. The other ones I'm hoping are bad. Fingers crossed. (laughs) They're really, really sappy. Uh, and predictable so I can watch them while I mash potatoes. Which is the hallmark of an excellent Christmas movie. It's also the hallmark of an excellent Hallmark movie, but that's neither here (laughs) nor there. Uh, That's all coming up. They also announced Enola Holmes 2 coming November 4th. They announced a Christmas Carol movie, because of course, at this point, why not make one? I read the title, it has Scrooge in it, and I thought, they rebooted Scrooged with Bill Murray? No, no, it's just a Scrooge, just some Scrooge. Uh, But if you're listening, Netflix, you still have a chance to reboot Scrooged with Bill Murray, and I will be there. Just show us the old one. The old one's great. Or just stream that. It's fine. And uh, most interesting to me, Netflix is going to release a film adaptation of Don DeLillo's White Noise, which is a classic modern novel. 
Uh, and I'm intrigued because LCD Sound System, my favorite Brooklyn band, is making their first new song in five years, I think it is, for the soundtrack to Don DeLillo's White Noise on Netflix. Just the whole sentence. I never thought I would live to see the day where I could say that sentence. LCD Sound System's first new song in five years will be for Don DeLillo's White Noise airing on Netflix. I like the idea that it's airing as part of a Netflix Christmas movie, and I'm not going to choose to interpret it any other way. It's my favorite rom-com, is the one about a mysterious cloud killing you. <laughs> I think that that means that they're, once again, they have not given up their Best Oscar, best Picture Oscar hopes. No, they have not. Well, maybe this is their year. Maybe. Maybe. But do you know who, who is having a year... A woman named Jennifer Waters? Is that her name? Attorney at Law? Walters? See, I say Waters because when I say Jennifer Walters, I think Jessica Walter. And that is a different Mm. person who I would love to see on this show. But sadly, that will never happen unless they want to CGI it. But I hear the CGI budget is really tight because there's a lot of CGI they had to cut. What are we talking about, though? We're talking, of course, about She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, the new Marvel show airing on Disney+, and the subject of this week's review. Yes, this week we watched the first two episodes of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, the new Marvel show starring Tatiana Maslany as the titular She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Diane, uh, obviously, spoiler alert for the first two episodes, how are you feeling about this? I feel okay about this. I wouldn't say that it's a slam dunk for me, uh, but I think that it's better than the Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb IMDb reviews would would have you believe. Um, Never read the IMDb reviews. Just never. Stay away. It's the Yelp of movies and, and TV. Truly. You know, it's it's kind of cute. I like that it's a half an hour. Uh, it's just very easy to watch, I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. I actually rewatched uh, most of the second episode before we recorded because as I thought about it, I went, that second episode just kind of breezed by me, not in a mm-hmm. way that is a detriment, not that it was forgettable, but that it just was easy, easy going. It was like a nice, smooth, light beer, not a Coors Light, but you know, when you sometimes have like a Pilsner where you're like, mm-hmm. wow, a light beer that's delicious. And then you can't remember the name of it and you'll never order it again. That's sort of the impression I got from episode two of She-Hulk, which is not a complaint, but it it is still in that line of like, not a slam dunk either. Yeah, I think that for many of the Marvel TV shows, my impression has been that I wish they'd take themselves a little less seriously. And this seems to be the one delivering on that. So I should be happy and perhaps I will be. We've only seen about one hour of content, and it's there will be nine episodes released, which I was relieved to hear. Honestly, we've really only seen one actual episode because the pilot, right. the premiere, is all backstory. The, the premiere is the story of how she became a She-Hulk. 
Uh, and that's great. And in fact, I wanted to bring that up because uh, we have a great link to an interview with the show's creator, Jessica Gao. Jessica Gao, uh, she comes from Rick and Morty, the Dan Harmon, it all comes full circle here, the Dan Harmon uh, hilarious cartoon that I am sure you have at least heard of. So she, her background is in irreverent meta comedy. And she's the creator of She-Hulk. And so she gave an interview uh, that I thought was really great with Variety, where she pointed out a bunch of choices that they made, and also just kind of how she arrived at this job, because it is a job at the end of the day, and how do you get the job of creating She-Hulk, attorney at law? Mm-hmm. Like, who who interviews for that? And what does your resume look like? Uh, so there's some highlights here I wanted to call out. The first one is about the pilot. This is where this this interview got me hooked, and I had to read the whole thing. The pilot, which is all backstory, how uh, Jennifer got her powers from her cousin, the Hulk, Bruce Banner. So they are related and they get into a car accident and some of the Hulk blood gets into her open wound, which due to genetic similarities and gamma radiation, which is all that you really need to know in the Marvel universe, uh, turns her into a She-Hulk. And so then the rest of that first episode is basically Bruce Banner, a deliciously CGI'd Mark Ruffalo, uh, teaching her how to control her Hulk powers, which uh, she already has a huge leg up on. One of the key differences between She-Hulk and Hulk-Hulk is that She-Hulk has full control to transform at will and does not do a Jekyll and Hyde personality swap. She just gets big and green. And then she goes back to Tatiana Maslany size. Uh, so all of that, that's all the pilot. It's a huge backstory. Uh, when when I watched it, I described it to you, Diane, as a 30-minute a setup to a really funny punchline, which felt true. The end of the episode is hilarious. She reveals that she's a She-Hulk in the middle of a trial when, when she's attacked by Titania, an influencer, <laughs> which, again, that's funny. I found that to be a really hilarious payoff to a really long setup. But what I did not know until after that episode is that that was originally going to be the eighth of nine episodes, that the entire backstory was going to be held back, literally, until the second to last episode of the season, and that they decided during the the process of, you know, uh, writing and then, you know, editing the show, that that was too long to keep the audience in the dark about her backstory. And I suspect it might it might have thrown off the momentum at the end of the season. Because when I when I discovered that that was originally going to be the second to last episode, I breathed a huge sigh of relief. Because to hit the peak of the, the climax of the season and then spend 30 minutes on a chill backstory where Bruce Banner is, like, getting drunk in Mexico with you, that is... That that is not a good choice. No, I did think it was a weird pilot. Uh, and I thought the momentum on the pilot was was hard to pick up because it was all backstory. And I think that putting it in eight would have been a disaster, particularly because there's nothing really traumatic in that backstory. It's just really... Like we did, like Chris said, it's pretty breezy. So I don't, there's nothing that I'm like, oh, now I know. In fact, I don't think I really needed to know that. I think a single line of exposition could have gotten me everything that happened in that episode. I like Mark Ruffalo and his chemistry with Tatiana was great. They were, you know, very funny together on screen. So that was fine. I, 
you know, it was absolutely watchable, but I'm much more interested in the actual premise of the show, which is her being a lawyer and being a She-Hulk. Right. She does not want to be a superhero. She does not want to join the Avengers. And there's some great, you know, uh, they're sort of one-liners, they're sort of jokes, they're sort of not, where people go, well, don't you want to be a superhero? And she goes, well, do the Avengers offer health care, maternity leave? Do they even get paid? And that's real and, and kind of funny. It's not hilarious, but in the universe of Marvel, where everything is taken so seriously, it is really enjoyable to watch a character point out these real questions that you would really have if somebody was like, don't you want to be a superhero? And you'd be like, I don't know. I have a lot of student debt. Do the superheroes pay for my student debt? The other thing about that is, yes, so many of those Marvel shows allegedly take place in our world, except for with superheroes, but very few of them seem to have any sort of uh, practical concerns addressed. Like, what are the rules of this universe? And I feel like we're getting a little bit of that intel here. Even the fact that, um, so there are a few Hulk movies that it's been a little unclear if they exist in the MCU. (laughs) Um, And now we know that they do, uh, or at least one of them does. Now we know why nobody has ever seen Mark Ruffalo and Edward Norton in the same room. (laughs) It's because they're the same person. They're both Bruce Banner. They're both Bruce Banner. It's canon. So it's revealed in the second episode. She gets a new job uh, for a mysterious law firm, but they don't really offer her many details. She's lost her other job and can't seem to find work, so she basically doesn't have a choice. And she's going to be heading up some new superhuman division where she'll be appearing as a lawyer, also as the She-Hulk. Um, and they want her to defend the Abomination, who fought the Hulk in the Hulk movie with in Ed Norton. The Incredible Hulk, the one just the called Hulk, The Incredible Hulk. Um, I'm going to be really honest and say that I did not see that one. Did you see that? I saw that one a thousand years ago. The King mm-hmm. of England was still in charge of the colonies when I saw <laughs> Edward Norton play the Hulk. I did. So actually, I, I looked into this a bit to make sure I was getting my details right. Emil Blonsky, that's the character's name who turns into the abomination. If you're not familiar, basically, you know, the Hulk is a guy who turns into this big hulking monster man. The abomination is a guy who turns into this big abominable monster man. That's It's just a knockoff Hulk. That's why he was the villain in the original Hulk movie. It was kind of a Hulk v. Hulk situation. Uh, so, you know, the Abomination has existed in the MCU as as a character and appeared in Shang-Chi, which was a kind of surprise twist. And I think a lot of people are surprised by how much of Shang-Chi is relevant to She-Hulk. Mm-hmm. In particular, I think it's an interesting choice that they took one of the oldest pieces of the MCU with the Abomination and merged it with one of the more recent pieces of the MCU with Shang-Chi and then pull it into the Disney Plus show. They are really trying to triangulate, like, can we gather all the disparate corners of the MCU and what happens when we put them together? And that might make it sound like this is being cooked up in a boardroom, right? It, it does have the sense of like, boy, that that sounds engineered to make me watch all of the Marvel movies again on Disney+. Plus. But bringing it back to this variety piece that I found endlessly fascinating, Jessica Gao says that this is the story she pitched. 
They did not pitch this to her. She went in and pitched a whole series of She-Hulk about defending the abomination in, you know, uh, superhero court. So this is not some, you know, crazy Kevin Feige-like machinations. This is what she wants to write, which, you know, especially when we're in this point where I'm not sure how I feel about the overall series yet, I'm encouraged that she at least says she's telling the story she wants to tell. Absolutely. And I'm intrigued by that piece of knowledge on how it came together in the sense that are the rules of the MCU sort of being found along the way? This seems to suggest that a little bit, that like, oh, I guess that is part of our universe. Sure, she pitched it, we can use it. Um, Rather than being some large scheme that Kevin Feige might have had, if that is the case like what does that mean for where all of these shows and films are going are they going nowhere and they're just going to keep twisting and turning around each other some people are worried that that is the case i would take the devil's advocate side here and say okay on the positive side kevin feige seems to be in a position where he's inviting people in to say give me your craziest ideas about what's going on in the mcu you're a fan of the mcu jessica gow you tell me what would you want to see in the mcu and if i the mastermind think that it can fit i will make room for it even if it was not part of my vision and she says in this you know interview that she didn't know if she would be allowed to use the abomination as a character if, because he is in this weird kind of place where that movie is not always considered part of the MCU because it's it's the Edward Norton one. Uh, mm. But Kevin Feige was a fan and, and said yes. And she said on the flip side, during the writing process, they tried to bring in more Marvel characters into episodes and that he said no to about half of them for various reasons. One she mentions in this interview is that they can't use anyone from the Spider-Man. They just they can't use anything Spider-Man related because Spider-Man's tied up in this weird deal with, with Sony. Sony. Yeah. yeah. So like they wanted some Spider-Man crossover and Feige was like, no. But I also think... What she was suggesting, at least, is that Feige is also aware of, well, yeah, you can bring the abomination in. We That does not negate anything we're doing elsewhere in the MCU. We can work with that. But you can't bring in Doctor Strange because he is occupied and that would be confusing and mess things up. For example, she said nothing about Doctor Strange. But, I, I you know, the... The hopeful side of me is saying, hey, there's one master editor who is not micromanaging, which is an interesting position to put him in, where he could micromanage the hell out of all of these MCU shows. Uh, At least, at least the people who work for him claim he is not. Take with that what you will. I think that's very encouraging. And I love the idea of a show that is like a courtroom comedy about a superhero. I don't think I've ever seen that before. We haven't really seen it yet for more than like 30 second parts of an episode, but I hope that we do. It's so many genres in one. That's fantastic. Which is fun. I do want more of the courtroom. I suspect Mm -hmm. we're not going to get as much of it as we think we will. Um, Again, in this interview, in Variety, the only thing I read this week, uh, Jessica Gao also mentions that in the writing process, she and the writers discovered that they aren't great at writing courtroom scenes. 
which I think is hilarious for the showrunner of a show with attorney at law in the title to openly admit in an interview. But you know what? At the same time, I never really expected that we would get seven seasons of a procedural uh, about law and order superhero justice unit. Like, I I never expected that that's what this would turn into. They've already basically told us that She-Hulk's going to join the Avengers in the new round of Avengers movies. So it's already pretty clear this is yet another Marvel series where we will probably never get a second season. So, you know, I understand we're not going to get a bunch of fun courtroom reveals. However, I would like to get some fun courtroom reveals, please. A little bit. I mean, it doesn't... Of course you can't do a full procedural in four and a half hours of content. No. But, you know, still, we're going to need some courtroom hijinks. So I hope that they figured out a way to do some of it. And and you can tell from the writing of the first two episodes that that wasn't what their strong suit was. I think the strong parts for me were... um, the tone seems pretty consistent across uh and also uh the themes are really strong it seems like she knows what she's trying to say about being a woman in the world right now and i think that's an interesting perspective to add to the mcu oh a hundred percent and some of the humor is slightly body but you're not getting anywhere near something like a peacemaker kind of tone where it's just like where the humor is that it goes so dirty no there's a running joke in the premiere where she's trying to get bruce banner to tell her whether or not captain america was a virgin that that is a running joke through the entire premiere which already was a little body for disney plus to me my goodness but in a post-credits scene he says bruce banner says no, he lost his virginity to this specific woman on a USO tour in the 40s. Like, there is a specific answer. And that scene is really funny. And Jessica Gao says, with something that she pitched to Kevin Feige. And then Kevin Feige went, not just do I love that joke. I have the answer for you. It was this specific woman in 1943 or whatever. <laughs> I just thought that was so good. That he also, he's at a place where he's like, yes, I'm willing to let you, you know, have a little leeway with the characters that were once kind of sacrosanct and i also want to get in on the joke i have the answer for you i love that too yeah i thought that was a funny beat and then they also just cut off the episode at the end right before she can curse which is beautiful yeah beautiful that's how you thread the needle at disney plus one device that i'm not sure if it's working for me or not is the direct to camera address where she hulk addresses the audience about everything going on they used it in both episodes but they used it kind of sparingly in the pilot they used it pretty early on and then had dropped it for a while so when she used it in the second episode i was like wait what is this why is she doing that i thought in the second episode when she was direct addressing us that she was talking to the people in the scene and then there was a moment where she really made eye contact with me because she was also it was a walk and talk moment so she was direct addressing while moving with other people which really threw me and and they 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 nailed it in that at the end of the scene i realized it was a direct address but i agree with you that that was not super clear which is risky and I, yeah. I'm thrilled that you brought this up because the next thing I wanted to talk about was the direct address because I didn't know that that is something She-Hulk is known for in the comics. 
Oh, okay. Right? And so Jessica Gao, who again spoke to Variety and then spoke to my heart directly through Variety, she said that they really leaned really heavily into it in the early scripts to the point where uh, Disney came back and said, could you, just could, could you write a version where she never does that ever? And so they did. And that then they settled on, okay, she does it, but she doesn't do it that often. And it is too soon to say whether they overcorrected. My gut is, if she's going to do it, she should do it more frequently. But we, I just don't think we've had enough exposure yet to know. But I will say, it's worrisome that when you're trying to establish that as a device, it's not clear at the gate. No, it didn't click for me. And another thing that's tricky is that the episodes are short, which is good and a good fit for the show. But we've only seen an hour. An hour over two weeks isn't that much content. So, like, it took me a little while to reorient myself to this world. I think that, yeah, it's it seems like the balance isn't quite right yet. Uh, there were just too many devices telling me things and I wanted to just go with her on the story by the end of the pilot um, between the flashback and the direct address and some of the dialogue because it is a pilot and because it is the MCU being a little heavy handed. I was like, come on now, let's just let's just get on with the story. And in the moments that we do get on with the story, like when the attack finally happens in the courtroom, I was like, oh, this is so fun. More, please. Yeah, when Jamila Jamil shows up, her her entrance into the court is full Kool-Aid man blowing through the wall. It's fantastic. And that is the punchline that I was talking about to that episode. That is the punchline to this long, long windup. And I, my, my biggest complaint is honestly like, that's when I got excited for the show. And then the pilot was over and I had to wait a week to watch another episode. And I lost some of that energy and some of that momentum. And I wonder if things like the direct address in the second episode would have clicked better if they had released the first two at once. I know they want to draw this out over nine weeks. I get that they only have nine weeks and they really want me to stay subscribed to Disney Plus for all nine of those weeks. I get it. But this, more than any other Marvel show yet, is the one where I walked away two weeks in now going, they really screwed up by not releasing the first two together. Because I wanted more of a full picture of the show. And I want to be a bit further on the journey by now than I am. Agreed. At the same time, I do think half an hour episodes are definitely the ticket here for this tone. Imagine if it was an hour. Oh, yeah, no. I don't think it should have been a one-hour premiere. I think it should have been we dropped two episodes. And whether you watch them both back-to-back or whether you watch them two nights in a row, fine. But I do do think they should have given us the option to go further, uh, especially because the first episode is all backstory. I think that these performances are the thing for me that's keeping me coming back at this point the most, like more so than the story, which is pretty good, interesting. I want to see what happens with the abomination, but more so I want to see Tatiana Maslany talking to Eric Roth, (laughs) talking to Mark Ruffalo. Um, There is a fantastic actor who plays Nikki, who is her paralegal and best friend. Her name is that ginger gonzaga every time she's on screen i'm like oh she just lights up the screen she's fantastic and actually a real good call out there because she is barely introduced in the text of the script 
Like mm-hmm. she, they say who she is, but boy, you could blink and miss the explanation of like this is her paralegal. They get along, blah blah blah. Her uh, relationship, her energy with Tatiana is so clear that I didn't. You could have told me nothing about her character, and when she shows up in the second episode as the new paralegal that uh, you know She Hulk gets to hire at her new law firm, I'm like, oh, of course that's who she was. She was the the best friend paralegal. Like it, their dynamic is so good that I didn't even need to know who she was. I was like, whatever, they work together. Best friend, work friends, work friends. Like it, they just they clicked, and there's a lot of that in the cast where I feel like the actors are really clicking into each other, which is super impressive in an MCU product, let alone one where half the time Tatiana Maslany is She-Hulk, which is some kind Mm. of weird CGI situation, and you can see a lot of weird backstage photos of how they shoot that, and it's weird. It is. It is weird. And it's a little off-putting for me as someone who's not, like, really into this genre um, to see that. But it seems like everyone's having fun making the show, which also makes it just a bit more fun to watch in this way. Uh, even with, like, the super villain, the Abomination, like, you know, there's a running joke about him writing haikus to people he's wronged to his previous victims which like again it's it's not you know the marx brothers but it's a pretty good joke it's funny and i should say like so with the plot we we, you know you were like i'm I'm here for the plot and i was like what is the plot as you said that we've described very little plot beyond attorney at law hulk uh what what they're setting up is she's gonna defend the abomination in his Mm -hmm. attempt to get parole because he's been locked up for over a decade because remember that edward norton hulk movie that came out in 1924 uh and that's how long the abomination's been locked up so so he's up for parole he's writing haikus and says he's changed and is controlling his transformations the way that she hulk can control her transformations and so the whole second episode you know uh, she hulk's not sure if she's going to take the case because the abomination did try to kill her cousin the hulk uh, and so she's she's like, should I do it? This seems like a betrayal. Of course, Mark Ruffalo is chill. And he's like, you're a lawyer. You take the case, man. I'm so happy for you. And she's like, you're right. And she meets the abomination. And he seems like he's really changed. And she's so excited to have this revelation that, like, I can do this. I'm going to be the She-Hulk lawyer. And that's when she finds out that there's, like, hidden camera footage of the abomination in an illegal underground fight club somewhere. Which is a funny twist that sets up, okay, she's got to defend him, even though he's probably full of shit. Right. It was, like, enough of a cliffhanger that I'll come back for the next episode. A few of the thematic choices, I think, uh, undergirding that plot are... For both of those situations where she's interacting with Mark Ruffalo, both when he trains her and then, again, when she reaches out to him about... um, whether or not she should do this, she's already kind of just going to do what it is she decides and she wants to do thematically for this fun, like, you know, light feminist take that works. You know, I I like that. But also it's not the most suspenseful choice because she makes up her mind and goes full steam ahead. So no. it's not, there's not a lot of will she, won't she, you know what she's going right. to do. When they go, the abomination will be your first client. And she goes, no, I, the viewer go, yes, 
Yeah, both her choices are rooted in she's already made up her mind, but so are other characters' choices right now, which does put us in this position of kind of foreign for the MCU. There's not a lot of tension. Sure, yeah. If the plot isn't the thing that people are coming back for, it's got to be the jokes. So I wouldn't mind the jokes being just a little bit punchier. Right now, there's there it's very watchable. But I think, like, you know, a few more hard punchlines might suit this style. Yeah, we, and again, it's Marvel's first real comedy, and they're feeling out how far they can go in that direction. And with the talent of somebody who used to write for Rick and Morty, like Jessica Gao, you know that they could go really far, and I'm sure that there is a lot of restraint being pulled to keep it in the Marvel genre. Mm -hmm. And we'll see how far they let her go. There's been, like we talked about with these, uh, you know, interview comments, they've given her a lot of leeway, but tonally how much leeway have they given her? We, we don't really know yet. We have a sense of the tone of the show, and it feels like it's very comfortable in its own skin, mm-hmm. but it's the beginning, and we expect it to go somewhere, and is that somewhere funnier, more action-packed, both, a third thing? That's the question, I think. So my question for you is, if it's about this after episode five, would you continue on through episode nine? Yes, because there are only nine episodes. So it's like a, right. a low ask, and I really like the actors. So even if the story went really off the rails or just was boring, I, that wouldn't be enough to turn me off because, like you said, they're all having fun. And honestly, if it was like an hour-long show, that might feel like a slog, like <clears throat> House mm-hmm. of the Dragon. Uh, <laughs> but it's a 30-minute show, and a lot of the episodes, like, it's 30 minutes, but, like, five of those minutes are credits telling you who dubbed it into French, German, and Spanish. So they're breezy. It is something where I could put that on while I'm folding laundry and have a great time whether it's a good show or not. Agreed. Yeah, I I, I think I'm going to be in the same boat. It seems like pretty much unless something goes horrendously off the rails, I'm sticking with it through episode nine. I also wonder, when you ask that question, if this had aired a year ago, would I be way more enthusiastic and optimistic? Because, as listeners may know, I feel a little burned by every single Marvel show, because they all Mm -hmm. promise something new, and they all end being the same old, same old superhero mumbo-jumbo. And and some more than others, like Loki would be an example of one where I, I have gripes with you know, how passive a protagonist Loki is in that show, but it ends in a really upended place that is more foreign and sets up a second season. And so they are trying some things, but if we look at Ms. Marvel, which is a show we've covered thoroughly on the podcast, I was so excited by the new directions that they were hinting at. I would have said promising at the time. They promised me nothing. They were hinting at like the secret world of Alex Mack and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm. Teenage secrets. Superhero. And instead, by the end, it was like she will return in The Marvels. And I was like, oh right, this is just a movie. And so here with She-Hulk, I would like it to get way funnier and way riskier, but I don't expect it to. No, I don't either. I am somewhat reassured by the fact that they got some of that superhero nonsense out of the way in the pilot by giving us this uh, 
perhaps unnecessary backstory or origin story. So we don't have to do that again. You know, may, maybe then she can just keep going along this adventure and we'll see what happens between her and the abomination. When you describe it like that, it sounds so boring. We'll see what happens between like her and Tim Roth, I guess, this other guy. I, I don't know. We'll set him up on a blind date. Eh, we'll see what happens. But, but I am, I am hopeful. And I love these actors, and I love that they're so even even considering making jokes at the MCU's expense in this show, which is something they sort of did in Hawkeye as well. Hawkeye actually does some really good jokes at the MCU's expense. So, I, you know, they, they've shown that they have the capability to go a bit further, but they always shy away at the end so far. I've always felt burnt at the end. And so, I don't know. I, I think I'm lowering my expectations a bit here. Me too. Yeah, I, I think that's more than fair. And I think that probably a lot of Marvel viewers right now, because we are in this uh, very saturated moment of Marvel content, this might not be enough to keep them coming back. Uh, we'll see. And speaking of things that we will see coming back, let's do a rewind review. Yes, it's time for us to revisit a show that we have already talked about on this here show. The show that we're talking about on this show today is Only Murders in the Building. This is a spoiler alert for all of season two and season one of Only Murders in the Building. They kind of go hand in hand here, guys. There's no way for us to not spoil both. Overall, I was really happy with where this season winded up, partially because I was really proud of myself for solving the mystery, yeah, but also because it was hilarious. Diane, I, I just, <laughs> Diane solved the mystery. Diane and I spent days debating who the killer would be. Diane knew. Diane had it right from the beginning. Spoiler alert again. It's Poppy. Poppy, the assistant who works for Cindy Canning, she is the only murderer in the building this season. She's not the only murderer in the building overall, but, you know, this season she was the only murderer in the building. And uh, I didn't want to believe that because I love that actress so much. She's so good. She is. It's a great role for her. I also think that... You know, if you work as an assistant long enough, <laughs> you can spot the red flags. She's she's uh, coming apart at the seams. Um, but it was very fun. And I liked that as we went from episode 9 to episode 10, they had really set up everything so it seemed like it was going to be Cinda Canning. And then in the season finale, they had two big twists where first you think it's going to be actually it's Alice and then no actually that's another thing that they've set up it's actually Poppy so I found that really satisfying that they didn't just say oh we revealed the killer in second to last episode and now you'll just see how we catch them that's how they set it up last season so I'm glad that they're playing with the format which honestly they hooked me because when we were debating this I said no Cinda did it because at the end of season of episode nine I was sold I was like this is what they did last season and they mm -hmm. revealed it right before the finale and then it was about the how do you catch the killer and it was really smart to mimic that structure and then deviate from it in the finale I will say I knew you were right 
moments into starting the last episode because they did the classic thing that I both love and hate where they did previously on Only Murders in the Building and then they showed you a scene from last season. They showed a scene from the finale of season one where Poppy comes up with the title for Cinda's podcast about the people who the show is about. You know, the names are bleh, but the show we watched is Only Murders in the Building. That's the name of the podcast that Steve Martin, Martin Short and Selena Gomez have in the show. Then Cinda Canning, played by Tina Fey, makes a podcast about them called Only Murderers in the Building. That title coined by Poppy, they show that moment again in the flat in the previously on, and I knew, I knew right then, oh, you don't show me that unless you want to remind me that Poppy always had the good ideas. Poppy does have the good ideas. They also did a bit of subversion where uh, it seemed like Detective Kreps was in a relationship with Cinda Canning, uh, but actually he's in a relationship with Poppy. I was genuinely surprised by that moment, even though I had figured out that she was the murderer. Um, And so that Cinda really didn't seem to have any knowledge. No, I love that the twist at the end of this is that, yes, Cinda's an asshole, but, like, so are a lot of people. <laughs> right. They all get along at the end. They're like, you know, Steve Martin and Martin Short are, like, friends with Cinda at the end. They're they're doing some synergy between their podcasts because they all solved the murder together. And I loved how human that was. That it's like, the whole season we've been thinking of Cinda as this monster, this meanie, this bad boss, this egotistical weirdo. And, like, all of those things might kind of be true. But we were getting fed a lot of that information from Poppy's perspective. And also, a lot of bosses and a lot of creative people are monster people who you don't want to work for because of all of those reasons I just outlined. So it felt really like, yeah, you know what? If I worked for Cinda, I'd hate her. And if I was friends with Cinda, I'd probably think she's really cool. Agreed. I think that this show tends to do that a lot, too, where they'll introduce someone as seemingly an antagonist, and then maybe we'll get more of their point of view and see the human side. And we haven't had that fully with Cinda, because even when we get Cinda flashbacks, they're, they've been from Poppy's POV, and to Poppy, Cinda is a monster. So I think that there's that also leaves space for us to have, like, more syndicating content in season three, um, which, as we've talked about on this, they have announced Only Murders in the Building is coming back for season three. And I am very intrigued by the setup of the next mystery as well. Oh, yeah. There's two things I love about how they ended this season One of which is that they mirrored so much of season one and then deviated. And some Mm. of the mirroring is just structural too. both the first season and the second season. Wait until the finale to give Steve Martin a ridiculous piece of physical comedy to do. And it's so restrained and so perfect because each time he nails it and you realize he still got it, man. But... (laughs) He knows that you only you you keep that in your back pocket. That's the piece de resistance at the end of the season is we get to see Steve Martin do some incredible physical comedy. This season it was doing the slow motion stuff so Martin Short got involved, the whole cast is supporting characters. They're doing this crazy thing where they're all moving in slow motion cuz Poppy said that Cinda gets nauseous when people move in slow motion, which in the moment it happens, I don't yet know what they're doing, that this is all a a scheme they've 
concocted to catch Poppy. And in the moment, I'm like, none of that actually makes sense. Like, no objective human would be terrified of these people moving in slow motion. So there must be something else going on here. But I don't have time to think about what that other thing is because I am in love with this scene where all of these amazing actors are moving so slowly and making faces. It's too good. It's so good. I kind of wonder if they were like, well, Steve, what kind of funny things do you like to do? Because that's the thing that we're going to say (laughs) really bothers Cinda. Yeah, that and tomatoes. Yeah, the inside of a tomato. So then they have a big reveal of a tomato cut in half. I... I had forgotten about that, so and it good. really made me laugh. So good, because it, it really, a show where they could do so many dumb jokes like that, because they have a cast who could sell you on them, they're mm-hmm. so judicious about really saving them for when they will have the most impact, which is just, it's the sign of people who are really experts at their craft, that they, they know what to hold back, and they know that we will still love them for it, you know? But, Agreed. And the the caliber of the joke writing is strong enough, too, that you don't need as many, like, uh, splat gags because you've got witty one-liners in there peppered throughout. Sorry, you were saying. Oh, no. What I was going to say is there's the other half of this in the finale, too, where they really broke from last season. Because first and second season, basically continuous story. At the end of uh, season two, we jump ahead a year and everyone has put all these murders at the Arconia behind them. And that is what makes me really, really excited for season three. They, They did a great job of wrapping season two, not too quickly... I, I, there was a moment where I thought they were going to wrap season two in like the first 10 minutes of, of the last episode. And they split the difference really well. They spent the majority of the episode wrapping season two in a great way. Then they did give us this nice chunk of one year later. And we now see, uh, you know, Steve Martin, Charles Hayden Savage, is back acting. He, he was back on his rebooted detective show for a minute, but they made him have dementia in case they needed to write him out. Now he's been freed of the wheelchair. He's allowed to be thinking and talking again. And he's back on Broadway in a show being directed by Martin Short's character. And and we're all excited. And they seem excited. Uh, Steve Martin's dating his makeup artist from the show. Uh, Martin Short and his his son, who's not his son, but of course he is his son, because what is a son but someone you raised? Uh, they've they've reconciled their differences. Selena Gomez has put her dark period behind her. Everyone's happy. So naturally, Paul Rudd dies, which is just such a great... And they give us just enough of Paul Rudd being a horrible asshole, it seems, right before he dies, that you know what we're going to get next season is a lot of filling in that year that just happened, because Paul Rudd has signed on as a full cast member, essentially, for the new season. He's going to be in most of the new season. So I assume that means we're going to rewind a bit and see how Paul Rudd became such a horrible asshole, it seems. Sad, but you know. And how he died and who did it yeah that's so that's the big mystery of this new season who killed the paul rudd character i think paul rudd is a really good fit for this show in terms of the tone of his acting he can also do big physical comedy but he can also do like witty banter so he should fit right in and gosh i love him so much i just this cast is so good i'm really really happy about this show i think that for me Season two surpassed season one 
Yeah, I would say so. It really, it took all of the things that we learned about these people and loved about them in season one, and it grew uh, in a great way. I, I, it ne- I needed to get to the end of the season to be convinced of that. There was some mm-hmm. points in the middle where it felt like they were all drifting apart into their own side stories, and I wasn't really sure how it would pull back together. But it, it did really nicely, and they all became more interesting characters who I now want to see their future. What's great is all of that pays off in jumping ahead. You know, I think it was smart to have the first and second season be one continuous story. I think that mm-hmm. was a good choice, but it is definitely time to take a leap because these characters have grown and changed so much that we want to see that change. Absolutely. I also think that... It's uh, just practically smart. Time passes between seasons, and it's always a little bit like, oh, wow, I can see that so-and-so lost 10 pounds. You know? <laughs> like, it just doesn't always work in terms of the practicality of a streaming show when we can watch so many in a row if we choose to, to like make everything so tight up against each other. Um, I, I think that breaking up the form is a really good choice as you move into the third season um especially because they know that the formula they have works so they can always fall back on it and hey that's coming in the future to hulu which we assume will still exist i think even if hulu doesn't exist perhaps like for for folks streaming in europe and some other parts of the world you'll be able to watch only murders in the building on some disney streaming service uh I I did want to add one of the folks who I work for is in his later 80s, and he also loves this show. It's got huge cross-generational appeal. Yeah, which is something that sitcoms, I think, have really been going for. We talked about that, too, with Abbott Elementary, you know, something you can watch um, with your whole family. And on that front, I think this is really uh, a huge success. Mm. Well, listen, listeners... What are you watching with your whole family? What is a show that you can confidently strike up a conversation with mom, Billy, I don't know, old Doris, grandma? What brings you all together at the proverbial dinner table where we all stream our TV together on our phones? Tell us. Write us, podcast at streamageddon.com, or tweet at us. I'm at I am Chris Barlow. Diane is at Diane Nora. That's Diane with two N's, and then Nora has another N, so, you know, count your N's. Otherwise, we'll be back next week where we are going to review another new Hulu show. We're just going to cram all the Hulu shows in before it's too late. It's Steve Carell in The Patient, and do not let the word Steve Carell make you think that it's funny, because no, no it is not. And you will find out more about it next week when we also re-review, a rewind review, if you will, The Resort. It's ending. We've talked about it. It's time. So come join us. Uh, binge both of those shows if you have the time and we'll tell you what we think looking forward to it until then keep streaming because that's all we do This takes the case in a whole new direction.